0: Hello, and thank you for joining us for another edition of Stratfor Talks, a podcast focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratfor.com. I'm Cole Altum, a managing editor here at Stratfor. And uh, as we all know, on January 20th, President-elect Donald Trump will be inaugurated as the 45th President of the United States. Uh, the inauguration itself uh, includes an immense multi-agency security operation. And to learn more about uh, that type of security, we're joined by Stratfor's Chief Security Officer Fred Burton. Uh, then Stratfor vice president of strategic analysis, Roger Baker, and senior analyst SimTac discuss our recent series about options, including military options, to address North Korea's nuclear capabilities. Thanks for joining us. So, Fred, thanks for joining us. We're here to talk about inauguration security for Donald Trump's big ceremony on January twentieth. Now you've been to a couple of these things, right? Quite a few, Quite actually. A few. Yeah, but it's been a while.
1: It's been a while, absolutely. Um, I'd love to go to this one, though, but I have—I'm still waiting for my invitation.
0: Well, I mean, you got a couple of days. Um, I guess before we get into the, the some of the, the finer points of the security, I, since we brought it up, let's talk about your experience there. What what, what did you do uh, when you were at these ceremonies? Uh,
1: my job as a protection officer. And a special agent with the State Department was to provide support and security for the inaugurations in the past. So I can vividly recall uh, the first Clinton inauguration and seeing uh, President Clinton and Hillary Clinton and the Gores on the stage at Georgetown University after we escorted the entire diplomatic corps to the actual event, which – a lot of folks don't understand, Cole, there's a tremendous number of uh, Washington luminaries, not to mention visiting heads of state, that come to these events to include the entire Washington diplomatic corps.
0: I think that's a good segue, I think, because for people like me who have not really worked in law enforcement or military, I think we tend to to, to overlook the logistics of these kinds of enterprises. I mean, you've got, like you said, the entire diplomatic corps. You've got officials from every branch of the, the U.S. government. You've got sometimes protesters, sometimes counter-protesters, you've got supporters, Um, you've got a lot of stuff going on. So it's tempting for us to think that the the jobs that you all did is purely reactive you're just keeping the peace there and you're making sure that you know no fights break out or or nobody gets killed and that's probably part of it too but i guess walk us through some of the the more proactive aspects to it i mean you've got to do there's 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 background checks there's 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 transportation corridors you got to block things off like give us a sense of how harried that process is
1: at a 30,000 foot view it's organized chaos uh, it's scripted very well though meaning uh, first off uh, washington is has held these events since, uh, I believe it was 1801, since you said Jefferson, uh, I think. Thomas yeah. Jefferson was uh, elected president. And then Inauguration Day has been uh, scheduled in January since 1937. So from a geography perspective, that doesn't change. So what the Secret Service does from a national special event is they'll pull that plan off the shelf from previous events, and then there will be planning meetings leading up to the actual inauguration, That's held at the Secret Service headquarters, attended by the State Department, the FBI, the D.C. police, the U.S. Park Police. So there's a tremendous number of law enforcement meetings that cover everything from static venues, such as the Georgetown University campus to uh, the parade route. To, well,
0: at least those don't change, right? You've got correct. the buildings aren't really going anywhere, so I guess that's that's a, somewhat of a respite for some of these planners, right?
1: That's correct. So in essence, the Secret Service can look and say, okay, we're going to have our counter-sniper teams here. This is the area that the president is going to get out of his limousine and actually walk for a little bit. This is the uh, parade route where they're going to stay. This is the dignitary location. And routes are frozen. That's the term meaning... If you look uh, days ahead of time, there will be a stair-step schedule that says, "Okay, 72 hours, this is what streets we're going to freeze, and we're going to sweep for bombs and hazmat, and then we're going to actually post law enforcement officers there. And there'll be a lot of officers from the surrounding D.C. jurisdictions and from across the country that are typically called to come and, and help with security as well. So it it is a one of these events in washington that that works seamlessly but the best way to explain it would be in that organized kind of chaos kind of environment
0: it's a real who's who's of agencies right it's probably alphabet soup up there you've got what uh, secret service you've probably got dss you've probably got dcpd you've probably got the fire department and the, who else i mean that's it's all it's, it's like a symphony of coordination it seems like any little thing could go wrong right
1: <laughs> correct uh, but uh At the end of the day, protection, body cover for whether it be dignitaries such as the diplomatic corps or the president or the former presidents, you still have your concept of concentric rings of security. So the closer and closer you get to the actual president or the former presidents, the tighter, the tighter that protection bubble is. And so that symphony that takes place in the past from a logistical perspective is is always kind of amazing. But it, it is well-organized, and again, having the benefit of doing it since 1937 on Inauguration Day gives the Secret Service a, a good bit of time to learn what went wrong in years past.
0: You talk about some of these things that are static, these things that do not change, in, in some buildings and some routes, and those are all pretty much set in stone, which makes sense. And without delving into the actual politics, I think you could maybe make a case that uh, the upcoming inauguration, might be a little different. You've got a million woman march. There's 200,000 women coming in protest. Uh, there's also the uh, marijuana advocacy group up there is like handing out a bunch of free marijuana because it's illegal to sell it, but it's not illegal to possess it. So that probably, I mean, they didn't have that at Jefferson's in 1801, right? So- um, I wasn't there for
1: that one. Yeah, well, I'll take your word you sh- for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, uh, so I guess the, these, these are probably, I- I'm being a little facetious here, but at the same time, like there probably are some new challenges- Uh, Every single year, right? Um, And that's probably going to be true this time. Do you you see anything different this time that might not be as true for for inaugurations of the past?
1: I don't. Uh, When you look at it from a protective security perspective, uh, nobody does their job better in the protection field than the U.S. Secret Service. And when you look at Washington, D.C., which is on every day's a protest, we used to say, There is always some group there always protesting, regardless of what issue it might be. So there will be designated protest areas. The D.C. police and the U.S. Park Police, uh, I must say, plays a a huge role in this because they use their uh, horse division. They use their helicopters to monitor protests. So there'll be designated areas. There's designated arrest teams. And so the process works fairly orderly, much like what the New York City Police Department does every year at the United Nations General Assembly. So as we used to say in the business, uh, and I know this might uh, not be viewed by a lot of my law enforcement colleagues favorably, but I'll say it anyway, uh, the U.S. Park Police is probably one of the best, if not the best, mass protest kind of police organization to be able to corral and herd and and fence off large-scale demonstrations because they deal with it every day. That's Um, interesting. I didn't know that. I I don't think that's going to be an issue at all. What scares the agents and the officers, and I can tell you this just from firsthand experience uh, at at working these kinds of events, is even though you have threat briefings, even though you've listened to the threat assessments, which uh, at times can paint a very scary picture because they talk about the probability from everything from weapons of mass destruction to airplanes into events and so forth. Uh, it, It gives you pause to say, boy, maybe I should call in sick that day. But what you're worried about is that lone assassin. You're worried about that Sirhan Sirhan kind of person, the Lee Harvey Oswald. And you're hoping that the intelligence division of the Secret Service and the State Department and the FBI has done their job trying to catalog and surveil those persons that pose a physical threat to your protectee.
0: I guess that's as true for the inauguration as it is for anything else. That you, you, you simply cannot account for the, the whims and fancies of mentally disturbed people. And as sad as it is, like that that does happen. We're going to shift gears. The Trump name, the Trump brand, is is everywhere. And so while a lot of attention is going to be focused in Washington, D.C. soon, he has a lot of properties all over the world. And do those pose any particular uh, security threat? You know, most presidents don't have a lot of buildings with their with their names on it overseas. He's got some, I think, in Turkey and India and all over the place. It's very expansive. Do you think necessarily being president uh, makes targeting those places any more likely than it, than it would otherwise? I think in all
1: probability, yes. When you look at this from a threat matrix, or if I was doing the threat assessment for um, the Trump-branded properties since uh, he has been elected president, that certainly has placed those venues uh, in a much higher category. And that's not lost sight on the U.S. intelligence community either, because the Secret Service in scraping the world for threats and intelligence is going to want to look at any kind of vandalism or potential threats, bomb threats, anything that is suspicious in nature affecting a Trump property anywhere in the world, because at some point in time, the president may travel to those countries, but it also helps you understand, much like we do here with uh, our threat lens process, you want to be able to factor that into your overall threat assessment or whatever you're trying to look at. So when you're thinking of this in context, uh, during the inauguration, when the eyes of the world are on Washington, D.C., Anything that goes boom in the night anywhere is going to capture the news cycle and immediately take over the next twenty-four hours. So that's something like we experience every day here at Stratfor when that happens. Mm-hmm. Anytime there's a major bombing or a terrorist attack,
0: I guess too, uh, those places abroad are going to need to be secured, and I'm sure when Trump travels, that um, that Secret Service, excuse me, is, is is going to play a part in that, but. Um, on any other day, when Trump's in in the White House doing presidential things, to whom does the fo- the responsibility of protection fall? Is that does that is that uh, sourced locally and privately? Is that are those U.S. government resources? Do you think?
1: Yeah, it's really an interesting uh, uh, phenomena from the protection business too. When you look at a global protection umbrella and trying to scrape the world for threats against Trump branded properties, meaning they're all going to be looked at, and depending upon the venue of that property you might have enhanced uh, paid for corporate security patrols you might have enhanced police protection but let's not lose sight of the politics behind this cole that these nation states know that uh, the man in the white house now has his name on this building and whatever venue it is and so they're going to have hopefully a vested interest in keeping that building safe right And uh, there's going to be a lot of liaison back and forth with those host government security services through the respective U.S. embassies to say, look, we really would like you to keep an eye on this property. Can you ratchet it up a notch? So those kinds of conversations are going to take place, but uh, in many ways you don't have to say that. You're going to have very good security services that are going to be doing that anyway anyway because they're, they don't want anything bad to happen to these properties to begin with. But you're right. We're in uncharted territory here. I've been asked this before in, in some of the interviews that um, I've done. Uh, I think you have to go back to, I don't know what exactly, uh, when we had uh, Teddy Roosevelt as president, what his name was on, what you know buildings, that, whether it be in New York City or academic institutions, that he may have attended, just based upon the Roosevelt name. But uh, this is something that's uh, far bigger and uh, certainly outside of the United States, that needs to be factored into the threat matrix.
0: All right. So getting back to the to the inauguration, um, I guess I guess it's fair to say if, if if you're working these types of events, it's it's hard to enjoy them. You've got a job to do. You're thinking you're you're on the clock. You're thinking about what you have to do. You've got boxes to check. You've got all these things that you that you must do. Is it does that prevent you from from sitting back and actually taking stock of the moment and and enjoying what's actually there? I mean, these are like these are historically pivotal events. Right. So, and, and again, you were you were there for the Clintons. Were you you were there for Reagan as well? Correct.
1: Correct. When you look at some of the inaugurations that I've worked, whether that be going back uh, as far as the um, Reagan inauguration and into the Bush and Clinton inaugurations, the one thing that I look back and think about is the weather. It's always <laughs> cold, and. It boils down on a practical level that uh, you're worried about your basic human necessities as you're standing post, and you're somewhat envious as a low man on the totem pole of those that have assignments on the inside of any kind of venue, because if you're stuck on the perimeter, whether you're a police officer or a special agent, you're worried about, are your hands warm? You're also thinking about, uh, when can I have my next uh, coffee break? And those are the kinds of practical things that come into play on a realistic basis. Meanwhile, you're worrying about your area that you're responsible for, and that might be as limited to a doorway or a hallway or a staircase or X number of feet on any given street. But I look back on these memories, Cole, as very fond having been a part of these, whether it be the inaugurations or the Middle East peace conferences or the visits of Princess Diana, as having experienced uh, unique venues and snapshots of American history that I'm proud of having been there and and witnessing. And I'm also uh, proud of the fact that at least some of the venues that I've worked in the past, we've never had any security failures. Uh Now, you always have issues that surface, but you never have any kind of, we never had experienced any kind of catastrophic event, uh, at least on those venues that I was there.
0: Thank you, and uh, thank you for taking the time today. With me was Fred Burton, Trap Force Chief Security Officer.
2: Roger Baker. I'm joined here today by Sim Tech, and we're going to discuss a little bit about a recent study that we've been working on looking at uh, options for dealing with the development of the North Korean nuclear program. So, Sim, as we got into looking at this, what are some of the driving reasons why we're looking at these options at this moment? So, the point is that North
3: Korea right now is reaching kind of the big decision moment where they are getting to the last stages of development of an actual feasible nuclear weapon, um, both in terms of having a functional nuclear device, but also being able to mount it on a missile and having a missile that can actually reach its intended targets. So. As they they are getting closer to the point of combining all of those elements, they are speeding up their program. And then there's, of course, some political situations in in the United States and South Korea that make it an, an opportune time for them to be pushing for this.
2: So as we're looking at the North Koreans, then, in some ways, we're not seeing the nuclear program anymore as a bargaining chip. Uh, it it appears that the North Koreans are very serious on the development of this program. And that would mean that there's a very limited moment now uh, between where they're at right now, which is incomplete, and potentially complete, which may change the calculus of how countries could deal with North Korea.
3: I think one of the important things to keep in mind as well at this point is while we studied the military option to go in there and take out the nuclear program or potentially deal a much, much more um, significant blow to North Korean military capabilities. Um, That's not the only option on the table. Um, We are studying this particular option to see, you know, how feasible is it? What are the costs so that we can we can understand what that part looks like? But separate from that, there still is the negotiated solution that's on the table or the potential for North Korea to simply have a, a nuclear weapon.
2: Right. So similar as, as we did a study in the past on Iran, for example, and looked at what would it take militarily to be able to delay or destroy the Iranian nuclear program. Ultimately, that wasn't the decision that was taken by the United States. The decision taken was a negotiated delay in the Iranian program. It doesn't mean that there aren't potential future military options still on the table. But right now, that's the, that's the path that's taken
3: correct um one of the big influencers uh, going into that decision of you know whether you may want to conduct that military strike or whether you want to uh, negotiate the the north koreans out of their nuclear program um is going to be how comfortable the united states is with that option there's there's a massive um, gap in intelligence when it comes to defining um, you know what exactly is part of the north korean nuclear program which facilities exist that we might not know about or which facilities exist that might not be that easy to to get to in terms of underground facilities Um, and then separately there's a cost that will come with this there there will likely be a north korean retaliation um one one could hope that there there would not be one but that's a that's kind of a big gamble to take um so when we're thinking about that then then you need a very clear intelligence picture of the north korean conventional capabilities um and even then even if you have that full picture you're going to take damage uh and most particularly within the region in south korea japan
2: so when we look at this um Yes, are there some similarities or differences between the studies we've done on on the Iran options and on the North Korean options, uh, particularly in terms of the potential counters?
3: One of the main differences there, particularly on the counters, would be that in Iran, one of the one of the most notable counter actions that that we were perceiving would be its potential to disrupt global oil trade. It's location near the strait of hormuz mm-hmm. uh, it's you know the, the very narrow strait that it could easily uh, disrupt that's a case that's not really present in North Korea. In North Korea, we're we're talking much more about physical damage done to South Korea, Japan, and how that basically shapes that that regional um, relationship. The U.S. If, if they conduct an operation like this, they're going to have to deal with aftermath from South Korea and Japan, um, or they'll they'll have to have significant buy-in from those countries before they do that.
2: Well, and, and beyond that, we have to look at the other countries in the region, China and what role they may be interested in playing uh, Russia and how they may perceive U.S. action and things of that sort. Without giving away the entire uh, study, what do you think is one of the key final takeaways? I think one of
3: the key takeaways is the the
2: significant... Uh, damage
3: that, that could be done to the northern areas of South Korea through North Korean artillery fire. Um, when we look at the numbers, there's been several studies in the past by by other groups um, that have tried to to build these assessments of what exactly can North Korea do when a war starts, whether that is for a, a strike on a nuclear program or for any other reason. Um, but I think we've been able to, to really build a nice picture that shows... Um, just how how vulnerable South Korea would be if North Korea chooses um, to go all out with their uh, retaliation. And that's going to be a very difficult barrier for, for the United States to cross if they ever do want to move to the point of, of a military action against North Korea.
0: All right. Thank you, Sam. That concludes this episode of Strat4 Talks. If you'd like to learn more about inauguration security, we'll include a link to an article by Fred Burton in the show notes. We'll also include a link to part one of our series on addressing North Korea's nuclear threat. If you have a question or comment about the podcast, or if you have an idea about a future episode, let us know. You can reach Stratfor Talks at 1-512-744-4300, extension 3917, or email us at podcast at And for more geopolitical intelligence analysis and forecasting, visit us at stratford.com or follow us on Twitter at Stratford.